0: People are really receiving this well. It's written in such a way that different departments and agencies find it easy to implement this standard.
1: Enchanted Sky Media. 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 This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. Well, you can put this show in the category of Unwelcome Changes. Did you know the U.S. has 5% of the world's population but accounts for 31% of all public mass shootings? Communities everywhere are facing an increasing number of active shooter or other hostile events. We've discussed the need for integrated preparedness and response on this show before, and in May, the NFPA came out with NFPA 3000, the standard for an active shooter, hostile event response, or Asher. It addresses all aspects of the process, from identifying hazards to incident management at a command level, and a lot more. Here to explain NFPA 3000 is John Montez. He's an emergency services specialist at the NFPA and the staff liaison for NFPA 3000. John is a nationally registered EMT. He's worked in EMS in several locations, from Boston EMS to the Santa Clara County EMS Agency. And John Montez joins me now. Welcome to Code 3.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Scott.
1: Let's start by defining our terms. NFPA 3000 is technically a provisional standard. What does that mean?
0: What it means is that the NFPA accelerated the normal three- to five-year development process for a standard and developed it in under one year. Within ANSI, uh, the American National Standards Association, there is a process to develop a standard as quickly as possible uh, and it's called the provisional standard. In order to, to do a provisional standard, uh, it, it's require, you, the organization is required to meet certain benchmarks. One of them is that we have to release a reason to justify the need to accelerate our process because there's an emergent need for this standard. And if you look at the statistics from, let's just use 2000 to 2016, according to the FBI, there's over 220 active shooter events, which is four more dead per the FBI. From 2000 to 2016, 2017, there was 30 Also, around 2008, the number of average incidents per year went up from 6.4 to 16.4. So these incidents keep occurring. Their severity is growing. Uh, More people are getting injured or killed in these incidents. And at the time, before 3,000 was released, there was no standard out there for the entire community, not just the response community, not just police, fire, and EMS, but for everybody. There was a lot of great guidance. FBI put out guidance, DHS, IAB, IAFC, IACP, IAFF, FOP, LMNOP, you name the alphabet soup, they put guidance out, and all of it's really useful. Hartford Consensus is another one. But none of that was in standard form. None of that was defensible for communities. And this document is a standard. The provisional just means we accelerated the process, and we have two years to update it. So it's actually open for public input right now. It'll be open till August 1st, and it'll go through a full cycle over the next two years. But it's an accredited standard ready to go.
1: So what is in this standard? What do we get out of it?
0: The standard outlines what's needed for an entire community's program, active shooter hostile event response program. What it does is it lays out what all the different factors and components a, compu- a community needs to in order to prepare, respond and recover from these incidents. So As an example, there's a section in there for facilities, what a facility needs to do, and they define that as anything that requires an annual fire drill in the Life Safety Code. There's also stuff in there for knowledge competencies for police, fire, and EMS for first responder training. What it doesn't do, and this is really important, is two things. It doesn't provide information for prevention because that's a bigger, more complicated issue and very difficult to standardize. It also does not provide local tactics, response tactics, because as you know, Scott, one one community may do things one way and another may do another. I'm an EMS guy, and if you've seen one EMS system, congratulations, you've seen one EMS system. Right. Everybody does things a little different. So the standard doesn't have tactics in there on purpose. They have knowledge competencies to train responders on what they need to know. And then how you apply that competency is based on your local uh, risk, needs, resources, and capabilities.
1: Give me an example of one of those knowledge competencies. In other words, what is an example of something that everyone needs to know?
0: All right, so here's a really good one and this one's actually in there for police, fire and EMS. It's in there for all of them and that is that they need to be trained on threat-based medical care. So, what that means is they need to be trained on medical care for themselves, their partners and the public under, under situations of high stress based on the threats that they are presented with. So, bleeding control, airway adjuncts and management and quick movement and assessment of a patient including themselves. Some examples of threat-based medical care that's out there is the TECC or the TCCC for the military. Those are examples of it. But the standard says that every first responder, police, fire, and EMS, has to be trained in threat-based medical care.
1: I'll be back with more right after this. Every day, you put your life on the line to protect our families, friends, communities, cities, and our nation. Federal Resources knows the dangers you encounter daily. Whether it's fire, hazmat, or the more recent opioid threats, we're here to support you, protect you, and help train you for your next mission. You're looking out for everyone else. Let us look out for you. FederalResources.com. So now this standard assumes that fire and EMS are at least going to be in the warm zone during one of these events. Is that true?
0: No. It, it assumes that they need to be trained on what to do if they are in the warm zone. Ah. But whether or not they're there is a local tactic.
1: I ah, got it. Terminology is always an issue when different agencies work together this is something that the standard could address, I assume, and what would it say on that?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of terminology conflicts that go on in these incidents, and the standard does a really good job of, in the definitions chapter, addressing some of those common terminology areas where people struggle. I'll give you a great example. If you look at the sides of a building, the fire service calls them Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta. The police uh, world, for the most part, uses one, two, three, four. Uh, federal responders use colors. Um, I don't even know what they are, but mm-hmm. red, yellow, yeah. blue, purple, magenta, fuchsia, you name it. They, I'm sure they've got them. So the standard one, the committee was developing it. Remember, you know, there was representatives from all three disciplines and the feds. They They sat around and talked about this issue, you know, simple thing like sides of a building. And what they agreed on was to use the letters because that's what's in NIMS in the National Incident Management System. And the law enforcement folks at the table said, yeah, if that's what's in NIMS, I guess we need to adjust because we need to meet NIMS requirements in order to get our grants. So let's do it. This is where we learn. And they were able to define what that means.
1: So who was behind the overall creation of this standard?
0: So the creation of the standard Well, the request for the standard came from Orange County, Florida, from Chief Otto Drozd, whose department was the second department into the Pulse nightclub. You know, in the aftermath of that incident and in the after action in Hot Wash, they talked about how there's all this great guidance, but nobody knows what to follow because there's no standard. And he submitted the request. The request came in in October of 2016, and for three months, the NFPA put it out for public comment to tell us whether or not we should go down this path. We received over 100 comments back. 97% were in support of creating the standard. And we also received 103 applications for the committee, which is the most we've ever received. In April of 2017, the NFPA Standards Council formed the committee. It's chaired by Rich Serino, who was the former uh, Deputy Administrator of FEMA and now He's a fellow at the Harvard Disaster Preparedness Leadership Institute, and it has 50 members. It's our largest committee, and it's police, leaders, IACP, FOP, uh, major cities chiefs, uh, federal enforcement, DOJ, FBI, DHS, the fire service, IFF, IFC, NVFC, many more, EMS, NAEMT, NASEMSO, Nemsma, IIA, EMSC, again all that alphabet soup. Emergency management, healthcare. There's actually uh, seven physicians on the committee. There's facility management, private security, manufacturers. I mean, it's a real labor. It's a real mix. This committee, but it's really big because these events affect everybody. Everybody's got a role to play. So this body of of leaders from you know around the country for these large organizations. As well as a a group of people that have been in these incidents, there's actually nine committee members who were actively involved in one of the more recent active shooter incidents around the country. There's someone from Sandy Hook, Pulse Nightclub, Las Vegas, the Sikh Temple at Oak Creek, Wisconsin. So there's people that have been in this and, and are responders and victims of these incidents. So it's a it's an interesting mix of people that came together to make this. And a lot of these people were in on making the guidance that's out there from all the different organizations. So they really came together to put this all in one place.
1: All right. So I'm hearing that there was a wide variety of personnel involved. Given that, what do you suppose is the one thing that is going to be the most different or surprising for most responders when they read this document?
0: There's a few things. Uh, One is that there is no tactics in there, and a lot of people assume that there would be, but there's no way to standardize that. And then the second is that there is a requirement when you're, if you're a fire or EMS responder and you're working in a hot zone, the standard does require that you be wearing ballistic protection. Specifically, it sets a minimum of level 3A by the National Institute of Justice. But right below that in the standard they also empowered incident commanders to in in the case of saving a life not follow that with the understanding that it's based on a risk assessment of the of the incident at the moment and after the incident's over that they're going to investigate it and include it as part of their after action process What we wanted to, what the committee wanted to do was empower them to have the option to send people in if they were willing, able, and part of that response, understanding that not everybody's going to have that ballistic protection right off the bat, but we still want to save as many lives as possible. They wanted to give them the ability and not make them feel like they can't do it, but at the same time, make them understand that if they do do it, it needs to be a very calculated risk that they're taking, and they need to investigate it and include it in the after action.
1: So how has the response been from agencies that have taken a look at what you've got out?
0: You know, honestly, it's been incredibly positive. From We released the draft in January of this year, and it was open for public co- input from January to February 23rd, January 5th to February 23rd we received 100, 807 public inputs on the document wow. um, the committee the committee looked at every single one when they redrafted it in march and released it as a standard and you know some of the things that were that were themes of the inputs they addressed and frankly you know from what we've heard it's only been out for 25 days but people are people are really i'm sorry 21 days people are really receiving this well. We're not getting a lot of negative feedback. It's written in such a way that hopefully different departments and agencies, as well as greater, you know, the whole community concept, find it easy to implement this standard locally for them. And, you know, a lot of places are doing something, which is really great. And what we really hope is that they take NFPA 3000 and they compare it to what they're doing and say, oh, look, here's some gaps in what we're planning for. Or, look it, we're doing really well. We should add to this. We're setting that minimum, but we want everyone to at least be on that same page.
1: All right, we'll leave it there. John Montez, thanks for being on Code 3 today.
0: Thank you so much, Scott. It was a pleasure. Anytime.
1: And we've put some more information on NFPA 3000 on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash NFPA3000. Check it out. Here comes the trivia question. Since we're talking about NFPA standards, let's see if you know what NFPA 1932 describes. I'll have the answer right after this.
0: Now's your chance to get your hands on Code Three t shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code Three Podcast dot com and click on the Code Three store link, or go to Code Three Podcast dot com slash shop and tell the world that
1: you're a Code Three fan. Here's the trivia answer NFPA nineteen thirty two is the standard on use, maintenance, and service testing of in-service fire department ground ladders. You probably knew that, right? All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.